0: the enviro show with nancy richards hi there and good evening and i uh, at the enviro show it is and welcome and uh, i'm nancy richards and the team today we've got kim winter and at uh, the controls we've got Leander mafiana well it was exactly a week ago today wasn't it that we heard the very sad news of nelson mandela's passing and almost exactly at this time in fact so by way of tribute from this particular show, we're going to focus tonight on Madiba as a man of the soil, as a gardener. First, though, we'll hear once again an interview that we did for Mandela Day. That was with Jeunesse Parks of Food and Trees for Africa, who celebrated Mandela Day in July with a great deal of planting. I was going to be talking to a fellow prisoner, Tulani Masab at Mabaso, who was on Robin Island, not at the same time as Madiba, but uh, Madiba, as you know, during his incarceration on the island, he also tended to a small garden, and we'll hear a little bit about that. We'll hear, too, about a very special Strelitzia in Kirstenbosch That's called Mandela's Gold. We'll be chatting to horticulturalist Pakamani Kaba, And as promised, we'll be bringing you another green read for the holidays, talking to the author of a very spectacular book, I might say. It's called Birds and People. He's from the UK, and he's Mark Cocker. And we'll be hearing, too, a little bit about uh, our local birders and local bird books from Africa's foremost field birder and author. He's Ian Sinclair. So that's what we have in the lineup. Hope you're going to stay with us. But if I can, may I just share a few words on Mandela as a man concerned with growing things? I'm going to quote from a piece that appeared in the paper recently. In fact, uh, the piece in the paper quoted extensively from uh, Professor Elaka Bohmer's uh, book called A Brief Insight, where she talks about Mandela as a garden. And she says, in the mid-1970s, uh, Mandela and Mkonte, with Sisway Commander Lalu Chiba, were given permission to garden a strip of open ground at the far end of Robben Island prison yard. The garden was uh, to be productive, not merely decorative, and it would grow nutritious vegetables for the prisoners. By late 1975, Mandela, Chiba and their helpers had raised 2,000 chilies, 1,000 tomatoes and two watermelons, as well as peppers and cucumbers. But the man himself says in his autobiography, a garden was one of the few things in prison that one could control. To plant a seed, watch it grow, to tend it and then harvest it offered a simple but enduring satisfaction. The sense of being the custodian of this small patch of the earth offered a small taste of freedom. It's not just a lovely image. Um, later, when he was moved to Pulsmore Prison, uh, it certainly didn't curtail his gardening activities. He undertook to relieve the rooftop's grey monotony by creating a garden in the sky using 1644-gallon oil drums sawn in half, into which he poured soil carted from the prison's own market garden. Later on, he would move to the deputy governor's cottage at Victor Verstere in 88, and he was also once again given a garden for his sole use during his final couple of years in uh, in prison. And in the past few decades, hundreds of parks across the world have been named in Mandela's honour. And in 1980, a three-hectare Nelson Mandela forest was planted with 2,400 trees and 120 indigenous species alongside his home at Kunu. So there you go. If you want to do something for Nelson Mandela, plant a tree. You're listening to uh, The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. And so we bring you the Enviro Show tribute to to Nelson Mandela as a man of the soil. Well, first up, we're going to cast back a little bit to July the 18th, which, as you know, is Mandela Day and hopefully will continue to be, certainly without any doubt, I would imagine. We're at a market this year. Food and trees for Africa were extremely busy planting trees. And we spoke to at the time we spoke to founder of the organization, Jeunesse Parks, to find out if she'd had many encounters with Madiba.
1: Yes, I've been very honored to spend time with Nelson Mandela on several occasions. Um, The first was, I think it must have been 1993, before he was president, when we um, held a um, tree planting event in Alexandra Township. And uh, I have a wonderful memory of actually shaking his hand across the stage. And we both addressed the crowds and uh, later planted uh, some trees together. A few years later, uh, Food and Trees for Africa was the recipient of a United Nations Global 500 uh, award, and that was at the Pretoria State Theatre, and uh, I, I went up on stage to receive the award presented by uh, Madiba himself. But just before that, actually, um really funny story, I arrived quite late at the State Theatre and was running down the corridors, and, and kind of got lost somewhere in the maze, and the next thing I looked up, and Mandela and an entire entourage were coming down the corridor towards me, so I virtually ran into him. He stopped, and as I think he did with everybody, he seemed to know exactly who I was, and to remember me, and gave me such a warm greeting, and uh, that's something that I remember every time I met him. He always seemed to know exactly who I was, and he remembered to where we'd been before, and it was very, very human and very warm Mm -hmm. and and
0: loving. Wow, it's a rare talent to remember people. Amazing. And then uh, again,
1: a little later, a few years later, I was able to raise money for the Nelson Mandela Park in Mamelodi, and we launched that together, planted more trees together, and there I spoke on stage with him again. And then finally, I think it was in 1999... We went and planted a forest at his home in Kunu, and that was a, a truly spectacular day. I think Nedbank funded the forest at the time, and Food and Trees for Africa arranged it, and we got to spend the entire day with, with him and, and with Grasa and many of the chiefs and the community in the area. And he, you know, he held my hand and pointed out across the fields there. Um, in the trans sky, just sort of rolling grassy hills and said to me that, uh, you know, I remember when I was a child that these uh, hills were covered with trees, and so I think that the work that Food and Trees for Africa is doing is so important. And a little while later that day, we went to plant a, a symbolic tree in his right in his backyard because this forest of trees was on his property a little way away. And um, I remember him saying to Grassa, it was a real personal moment and I'll treasure it forever, saying to Grassa, Grassa, where are the chickens? And she said, my darling, don't worry, there are the chickens and don't worry, we'll never have to buy eggs again. <laughs> and it was just, just so endearing to be within that, you know, in, within that space, in that in that really personal space. For me, just being in his presence has always been hugely inspirational. And you know, in fact, When I started Food and Trees for Africa in 1990, it was he who inspired me. Just seeing what, what a single, how one single person could so significantly change the world. And looking at all the things I wanted to do to green South Africa, to develop food security, to develop greater awareness around climate change and the environment. Uh, you know, I could have sat there and thought, "Oh, what's one person? How, how am I going to do this?" But just looking to Mandela and his determination, his focus, and his humanity really inspired me to realise that I could indeed change things for the better. And further, he inspired what today is still our motto: that one can make a difference.
0: Yeah, indeed. Gosh, what a what a clutch of fabulous stories! <laughs> I particularly love that one where he, you know, pointed out towards the rolling hills and said, "He remembered yeah. when there had been this, these had been covered." with trees. Uh, obviously, he is somebody who is quite green-conscious, certainly very tree-conscious, I suppose. Perhaps there weren't quite so many on Robin Island. What did he know about trees? He
1: seemed to have a great uh, empathy for trees and a great understanding of the need for trees in our lives. And, and, of course, not just trees, but gardening, you know. I mean, I think it was in the 70s where they finally allowed the prisoners to garden and his garden became... Uh, something of huge value to him and and I think he said something like uh, this is the one thing that he had control of while he he spent all of those years in prison. It was the one thing that felt, felt like his own and that he could control. So I think gardening and being in touch with the earth uh, must have
0: been a huge source of, of, of solace for yeah, him. Yeah, really. yeah, yes, I'm absolutely sure. Because, you know, in, in his days as a freedom fighter, I suppose he was, you know, in any one place long enough to even consider uh, planting something. But yes, his, his time as a gardener on the island is certainly something that would have kept him grounded, I suppose, for want yeah. of another word. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which we all need to do. We all oh, need to do at some point. But, uh, yeah, you know, having just uh, uh, celebrated his birthday, um, well, for us, Every day is Mandela Day. But uh, it's been really exciting this year. We at Food and Trees for Africa have been absolutely inundated with companies and individuals wanting to do their bits to to honor and celebrate this um, tremendous man's life. And so we've run 41 Mandela Day events in this week, everything ranging from planting a lot of trees, running workshops with a lot of schools, the development of food gardens, and even taking the Department of, of Mineral Resources out to do some organic farming. So, yeah, right across South Africa, it's been the busiest Mandela Day, Mandela Week, and, mm. uh, that we've ever had. Uh, so, that, so that's really great. I mean, we've worked with the um, Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. Uh, we've been working with them for some time to develop a food garden at Yeovil uh, School and uh, they're, they're really staying true to his ethos by developing this kind of food garden, working with orphans and vulnerable children who depend on the feeding scheme, and for many it's the only meal of the day is at school. So um, that was a, a really nice little event, planting a
0: food garden there. Your output... Is very impressive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, well, you know, we love our work, and there's yeah. a lot to be done. Nancy, yeah, yeah, the demand indeed. is higher than ever for food gardens for trees for awareness, especially in the light of climate change and uh, you know our changing, changing climate, which is impacting on the availability of resources such as water and of food itself and yeah. food prices.
0: When you talk about you know Nelson Mandela being conscious of the need for trees, the value of the worth of trees, I'm thinking of Wangari Matai who of course planted heaven only knows how many, um, but was so very conscious of what a tree represented, which is not just something stuck in the ground and growing and, and looking nice. It's all the things that go with it that I absolutely. suppose that's yeah, what you're... Absolutely. Yeah. I was
1: very fortunate to plant with her as well. Mm. So, you know, this this um, inspiration to make a difference through greening and food gardening has led me to meet and uh, uh, and share with some really remarkable people on the planet. But, yeah, trees are, are intrinsic to our very lives. You think that most of us grow up in relatively leafy suburbs and so don't think what it's like to grow up in barren, dusty, degraded environments, which many of our townships still are, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not so sure that most of us live in leafy suburbs. I think probably fewer of us do. Oh. Yeah. I'm interested in what you were saying about taking the Department of Mineral Resources to do some organic farming. So it seems that your educational role is not just at school level, it's beyond that just describe that project yeah
1: well we we now have the trees for all and trees for homes programs have been going for many years and our food gardens for africa programs where all the food gardening at schools happens but um, in recent years we've started a new program called feed africa farmer eco enterprise development where we are developing organic farmers on organic farms so Unlike the food gardens, which are really focused around food security, the farms are about business, bringing emerging farmers into the green economy and into the mainstream agricultural economy through uh, the development of uh, farms. And we now have about five farms uh, in the ground with another four or five about to start, and it's a really exciting program. So we're working with a lot of the mines because the funding for this comes a lot from enterprise development and hence the um, interest of the Department of Mineral Resources. And so, yeah, they're actually... um joined us out at Onverwacht Communal Farming Association in Cullinan and got their hands into the soil Mm. um, and helped the farmers to to do some planting and weeding.
0: Mm, That's a very good news story. You know I'm sure I've heard it right here on this program somebody saying you know the idea of small farms and small farming it's never going to work you know if if something's going to be really successful we've got to have the big commercial farms Um, you know small farms especially organic farms How viable, how sustainable are they really on a a, a long-term basis?
1: Of course, I'm going to tell you they're very sustainable, and from our own experience they're very sustainable, and the first farms that we have are already selling to a lot of the major outlets. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, maybe people are talking about small food gardens. They're still sustainable and they're still essential. People need uh, to be able to grow food on site and especially at schools. But what we're doing through the feed program is indeed establishing larger farms. So the farm where the DMR are visited is is an 11, it's actually a 200-hectare site, but 11 hectares are under vegetable farming. The... um, 20 to 30-odd farmers there um, are already um, earning quite uh, quite well from selling to the local uh, formal retail market. So, uh, you know, organic farming is a way of not harming the water and the soil so that one can grow on the same land uh, sustainably into the future. So we think that is something that has to develop you know i think also what's important is people are becoming more and more aware of what we're putting into our bodies
2: yeah yeah. um
1: and food is becoming a little unsafe as we mass produce so we need to look to more sustainable and organic ways of production in order to um not just sustain environments but to sustain
0: our health food and trees much as they um clearly doing their very best to can't be everywhere uh, right across the country though i know that your your footprint is huge On your website, which I also know is very very informative, is there a sort of green print, if you like, for starting up a vegetable garden, a small organic farm? Have you got sort of how-tos on
1: it? Um, On the website, um, not so much Mm. in terms of how-tos, but we have a really uh, good little book called Growing Green, uh, which covers everything from permaculture, food gardening, to Uh, the planting of trees, bamboo, a little bit of information around climate change, quite educational um, little booklet that also is used a lot by schools, uh, but that's quite useful. And, uh, yeah, we also run one-day permaculture uh, courses at our Kaya in um, Johannesburg where people can attend a day of just basic introduction to how to get your own home uh, food garden going.
0: So, growing green can it be? Uh, is, it, is it available in the bookshops, or can you buy it on your no, website? It's available on
1: the website okay. in our shop. We've got a new shop, Shop Green. Uh, we, we've been very active recently. Nancy, you and I haven't spoken for some years, but we now run six programs. We have a shop we're running courses uh, periodically and producing a lot of educational material so our shop green's got uh, the book and some also very interesting other uh, green products
0: Jeunesse Park for uh, president I would say <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh Nancy
0: you're too kind <laughs> well keep up the good work lovely um, to lovely to chat once again thank you very much Take thank care. You, Jeunesse Park of food and trees for Africa and what they did this year for Mandela Day well if you'd like more information on the organisation don't forget it's www.trees.co.za
3: When I told one of my
4: advisors a few months ago that I wanted to retire he growled at me quote you are retired (laughs) if that is really the case then I should say I now
3: announce that I'm retiring from retirement, <laughs> I do not intend to hide away totally
4: from the public, but henceforth I want to be in the position of calling you to ask whether I would be welcome rather than being called upon to do things and participate in events. The appeal, therefore, is, don't call me. <laughs> I'll call you.
0: The Enviro Show. Well, having said that Nelson Mandela tended to a small garden on Robben Island and took her great pleasure in watching things grow, we thought we'd see if we could find out a little bit more about this. And earlier, we spoke to former island inmate, Tulani Mabaso, and uh, we asked him first when he first met Madiba. Uh, I,
4: ca- I, I, I came from Johannesburg prison and to Robben Island, and uh, that was late in the in 1986. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, 1990, after Mandela got released, our, we were transferred to Paulsmo prison.
0: Yeah.
4: And then we were on hunger strike.
0: Okay.
4: We were demanding to be free. And then while we were in Potsdam, then Mr. Mandela came to visit us.
0: And what did he say to you?
4: <laughs> the first thing when he came, we were, we, we, we were in the big in the room. So then we greeted one another, as comrades, and then, they, and then they, the first thing he said, comrades, you must stop on a strike.
2: Mm.
4: And it was a very strong directive. And then he was mentioning that even those who are in the hospital are going to be released very soon. And then we were interacting with other matters. So I was sitting next to him. He was wearing those big shoes
2: hmm.
4: and the jacket because it was seemingly it was raining outside. And then there was one gentleman next to me, who was still a boy, very young. And he very militant. And then he said oh, we are I'm going to we are not we are not going to stop hunger strike up until they release us. And then Mr. Mandela said to him, what's your name? He gave his name, and then Mr. Mandela said, when I'm leaving here, you are going to be released. So it happened exactly that way. Yeah, yeah he was very strong, and uh, but he, we were very excited. After he left, and then we, we stopped on a strike. Mm.
0: Mm. So you took his words to heart. It sounds like the... Yeah. It sounds like that meeting left a great impression on you. But, yeah. so you were never on the island at the same time, but I think no. that you know that he was a bit of a gardener. He had a small <coughs> vegetable patch on the island. What do you know of that?
4: Yeah, there was a very beautiful garden on the island uh, with, uh, I won't remember the names of the flowers, mm. but with the very beautiful flowers. And uh, it was kept, it was, those flowers were planted by him, and uh, those flowers were always rotating. And uh, the garden, there was a there was a, grape, there is a grape tree that is there. There was uh, even an apple tree. So there was a uh, Mr. Mandela's co-accused who took over the garden, Mr. Aylas, the late Aylas lady So he kept that garden very beautiful. And uh, most of us, we were inspired by that garden. Mm. And uh, we were Sometimes we ask questions him hey, this we are having a salty water here, but how can the plant grow in that salty water? so he had ways and means of uh, giving those plants some food like water, and then there was this cass of uh, of uh, manure, because you must know that island the island is full of fish, uh, mm. but uh, you see the the birds' waste collected and we always thrown in the garden and then you see in the kitchen when the guys uh, peel off the carrots some of those carrots were thrown in the garden so it was he were using anything that uh, that can fertilize the soil so the garden was well kept and then even the grape plant the grape tree so when we were playing like a tennis on Saturday morning, maybe in a sunny day, uh, sitting in those ten- in those crepe tree under the crepe tree, and then discussing it, talking, other comrades playing like people like Joko, Suhuali, a very good tennis player. He teaches how to he taught us how to play tennis. So and uh, we were very much sensitive on the garden. You know, when sometimes you see the plant that goes down and then some of the comrades will go there and pull it off because it's going to affect other plants, Mm. so it's going to be pulled off and uh, yeah, the garden was kept very well, very beautiful.
0: Wow, Mm. it sounds like it was a bit of an inspiration in itself. The Mm. vegetable were there only flowers and vines or were there vegetables as well?
4: There were few. There were there were veget- few vegetables. I remember there were few vegetables like a like look, look like a spinach. There were very few vegetables, but mostly was the flowers. Uh, I remember some of the flowers were cut. There was a comrade that was going to get married, so some of the flowers were taken out from that garden. So even some of the cards they loved those flowers too. Mm. Mm.
0: I'm just wondering, it's lovely that the flowers were used, I'm wondering if um, if one of the vegetables grew, who got to eat them? Did the prisoners themselves get to eat them or did they go to the kitchens? No,
4: we we, we must know that we were longing for fresh vegetables. I'm sure. So whatever comes out from that vegetable is going to be shared, and uh, usually we take it to the kitchen, is going to be taken to the kitchen so the kitchen staff, they were political prisoners. They know how to do things, share it amongst others. Mm. So sometimes we, yeah, sometimes we see it comes out and then it died. And, uh, well, you tell it, there's going to be analysis uh how it died, the plant, and all this. So what can be done to keep it going, yeah. Gosh, it sounds
0: like it was a sort of horticultural school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that... Uh, um, that Mr. Mandela said was a garden was one of the few things in prison that yeah. one could control. So he felt it was at least something that over which he had some sort of power. Mm. Did, did you get that feeling too from the garden, something that at least, you know, you had control of?
4: Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. You, you know, waking up in the morning after the, maybe waking up in the after the long night, and then when you walk out, and then the first thing your eyes is looking in the garden. And then when you look there, then you see there's something wrong in your, in one of the plants. And then you uh, you just <clears throat> you just go there and interact with the plant, you know, mm. and uh, and uh, you make sure that you cultivate the soil, that soil that soil, and uh, put some water, and you don't just. Just like
0: that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, just lastly, um, one of the things Mr. Mandela also said that, you know, during the time that he was in prison, he cultivated not just the soil and the plants, but also himself. For him, it was an opportunity to think and reflect and to grow himself in a way. Mm. Did did you feel that? I'm sure it's not the same for everybody who's in prison. How was it for you? No, for
4: me, yes. For me, it was a... Uh, the garden was very inspiring to me, and uh, you must know that uh, uh, I, I, at home I used to work in the garden. So when before I got arrested, so so those uh, the garden in the prison, uh, I was so much in love with it, and uh, sometimes I, I'll just praise that sun and work in the garden, taking some foreign seeds around and, uh, and then we'll see other comrades joining you, doing the same thing. And then uh, we started to have uh, a debate about it, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, the, we had some even some superstitions, you know, and then say, hey man, what is simple as this plant, why is it doing this, and that's simple as, you know, talk about oppression. And but, uh, we had uh, just a very, very good discussion and encouraging, and then, What was so uh, always uh, important was that when we plant something, we wanted to see the plant to grow. So, that's why we will make sure that we take care of it.
0: A symbolic gesture in itself, Tulani, bless you. Thank you so much for sharing all those memories, it sounds like they're still very close to your heart.
4: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Tulani Mabaso. He was a prisoner on Robben Island, not at the same time as uh, Nelson Mandela, but he was there sharing some wonderful memories of of gardens on the island. So, given that Mandela was something of a gardener, how appropriate it seems to be that many years later, the gardening world has paid tribute to him a number of times with the naming of some plants. In 1996, there was the Rosa Madiba. It was uh, released by Ludwig's Roses, and it's uh, apparently a fragrant hybrid tea rose with uh, tea rose with long pointed buds of a deep maroon pink. And later on in the mid 2000s, uh, there was the Red King Protea, a striking deep red King Protea cultivar named Madiba. And then uh, finally, there was an orchid Paravanda Nelson Mandela. That was I'm not quite sure when that was, but this was named to honour Nelson Mandela on his visit to the Singapore National Orchid Garden oh, in 1997. There you go. But at Kirstenbosch Botanical Gardens, that incidentally turned 100 years old this year, there is a very special plant and it's called Mandela's gold. It's yellow strelitzia. And to tell us more about it and how it came to have this name, we spoke earlier to horticultural researcher at Kirstenbosch, Pakamani Kaba.
5: Mandela's gold is a strelitzia reginae. It's a special cultivar or form of strelitzia uh, regina. It's a plant that's uh, occurs here in South Africa along our east coast from the Eastern Cape human's dog right up to uh, up in Zululand uh, normally it's orange got these orange petals but Mandela's gold got yellow. In the early sort of fifties or so a clone was discovered that was yellow, that yellow Guazulu-Natal, and later one was also discovered in uh, Eastern Cape. One clone was uh, taken to uh, Wooster, and later uh, one was taken to Kirstenbosch. Uh, John Winter, in the 80s, he was the curator of Kirstenbosch, brought the other clone from Wooster to Kirstenbosch, and started experimenting with getting homozygous gene of, uh, uh, of this yellow. Uh, because if you try to self them, sometimes a seed doesn't set so well. So he he tried these bold clones and came up with this really vibrant yellow, which uh, initially they called testing Bush Gold. And it was until in uh, you know in the uh, mid uh, 90s when our then Professor uh, Huntley Brian Huntley, our then CEO, he renamed the plant mandela's gold in honor of mandela's gold in 1996 mandela uh, president mandela then uh, came to Kirstenbosch bosch to you know accept uh, this wind they planted the, an endangered tree called Wabergia salutaris which is called the paperback tree or isibaha in isizulu in and uh, the tree is still there growing very well and Strelitzia Mandela's gold around it. And there's also a bust of of him uh, that was recently erected at Kirstenbosch.
0: Yes, it makes it a very special little spot, doesn't it? I, I wonder if in the last few days, since December the fifth, when he left us, have, have a lot of people come there to look at the bust, to look at Mandela's gold.
5: Definitely, mm. they've put uh, you know flowers around uh, where the bust is, and uh, also admiring uh, that. You know, Mandela's called the connection, you know, with the plants, even. You know, who would have known? He would also admire plants. He's, he's truly a man of all sorts of seasons. He, he fits everywhere.
0: He certainly does. He seems to have had a very broad interest. You know, we were hearing about uh, the garden that he helped grow on Robin Island. But I think even in a speech that I heard him deliver a little while, well, you know, it it was a speech that's been rebroadcast. But in it, he talks about the jacarandas and the mimosas. And obviously a man, as you say, who cares about these things, who cared about these things.
5: Uh definitely I think he did care about the natural environment the fact that he came to was to plant that warburgia salutaris which is highly threatened it's uh, because of uh, medicinal use and also a commercial forestry you know he tried to highlight things like that uh, which uh, are rather important. Today. Yes,
0: yes, rather, very important. You know, with the thing about uh, Nelson Mandela's legacy is that one hopes that it will carry on and grow and grow, and there's quite literal sense in this particular case. That particular Mandela's gold is quite a big, healthy, bonny Strelitzia, but has it been cloned again and again? I mean, are, are seeds being kept? I know that sometimes it has little sort of hats on the, on the flowers to... To keep the seeds, are there going to be many more such strelitzias?
5: We do have a uh, plenty of seeds at Kirstenbosch and seedlings of Mandela's Gold. Uh, over the years, you must remember this: the process of breeding such a plant, selectively breeding it, it takes, I would say, a decade or so. So there's a lot of time investment because, uh, from seed, they basically flower uh, if you grow them. From seed, uh, normal uh, time would to be about five years or so. But the question was, we do it for half the time of that we've managed to perfect the technique. Uh, so we have uh, plants, uh, but however, we have continued and we, we've we recently released also another strelitzia, which is a chuncia, a species called chuncia. That's also a, in that tradition of the Mandela's gold cultivar. is also yellow, but it's, it's got no leaves, which unlike the, the reginae and the cultivar, Mandela gold.
0: Well, thanks very much to Pakamani Kaba there. And if you do find yourself in Kirstenbosch, uh, or find yourself in Cape Town, do pay a, a visit to Kirstenbosch and you can see Mandela's gold. It's a yellow Strelitzia and you'll find it right next to the entrance, next to the bust of the man himself.
2: It's a fact. It's a
0: fact. Fact.
3: Handel and Tchaikovsky are the composers of Nelson Mandela's favorite music.
2: It's a fact. It's a fact. fact.
3: This is SAFM. The
0: Enviro Show. Finally, here on The Enviro Show. Throughout this month, what we're going to do is bring you some green reads. That's green reads that's in place of our green goodie feature. Titles that you may like to get hold of for the holidays. And today, certainly a king among books. It's called Birds and People. And in fact, you'll be hearing a little bit more about it on SAFM Literature at some stage. But it's a book that took author, UK author, Mark Cocker over a decade to put together with the help of many hundreds of people from over 80 countries who shared their information and anecdotes. But when I spoke to him, I asked him if the environmental aspect of birds had been in his mind when he wrote the book.
6: The book, Birds and People, was supported by BirdLife International. It was a collaboration between our publishers and uh, a major international um, conservation organisation. And I suppose what I would describe Birds and People People As is, a, is an environmental book by the back door because what it, what it's saying is um, we, we, we're trapped in the way in which we talk about the significance of nature or specifically the role of birds in human experience. We have a, this environmental language about um, biodiversity and, uh, you know, red data species, but how do we really talk about what birds mean to us and what birds and people attempt to do is to show that uh, we, are, we are, if you like, populated. Our imaginations, the inner life of human beings, is populated by birds to an extraordinary degree, and they provide us with uh, inspiration for so much of our cultural life. And if the ecosystem outside is, is reduced and obliterated, as is happening pretty much in our country, if not yours, then you will lose the mainsprings of the human imagination. You will lose all the richness that comes from your engagement with nature. So so we're trying to widen the ways in which people understand how nature functions for humans. We're losing, you know, not just something out there, but within us, something that makes us human beings in the first place.
0: Yes, indeed. I think, as I think I said earlier that we take birds so much for granted, but they are, one way or another, something of a barometer of how things are going in terms of uh, many species becoming extinct.
6: Very much so. I mean, you know, the, bird, the book doesn't want to labour too emphatically a moral line about our treatment of birds. But, you know, in this cohabitation between us and them, the abuse from us to them has been extraordinary. And, you know, we tell some of the stories of extinction and and uh, decimation. I mean, one particularly powerful one is, is the short-tailed albatross. There was this island, Japanese-controlled island, where there were millions, millions of albatross. And they just decided to start harvesting them, converting them into feathers and meat, etc., And they kept wielding their clubs until they thought they had killed every single bird, four million birds on the island. And, I mean, fortunately, a few were out over the ocean maturing and growing up, and they eventually returned, and this extinct bird, as it were, rose from the dead, phoenix-like, and now there's a population of about two or 3,000 short-tailed albatrosses. But we had continued hammering this bird with our, with our wooden sticks, until we thought we'd killed them all. And it just it, it's, it's those which have their own moral lesson. I don't really need to, to, um, to add a layer of, of, of moral censure mm-hmm. because the stories speak for themselves. And the book is an attempt to, to, uh, to narrate all the ways in which birds function for human beings, but also by implication to show that we have gained so much from them. I mean, half the protein eaten by humankind comes from the chicken, hundred and forty seven million tonnes every year. And it's an extraordinary debt that we have to birds. And and as you say so rightly, you know, we, we do tend to take nature's bounty for granted. And the book is, is is like every book about wildlife, it carries this implicit environmental message that that we should look after what has given us so much.
0: It's extraordinary to hear you talk about chickens, and I'm thinking that, you know, we revere the eagles and the great ones and, the you know, the magnificent birds, and yet there should be a, a place in heaven dedicated to chickens to say thank you for for all that they've given us uh, over the centuries. You know, you talk about it, birds that have become extinct or been saved, like the phoenix, from uh, extinction. The dodo was not so lucky. Does the poor old dodo, who is long gone, feature in the book, too? I think he does.
6: Yes, there's a story. I mean, one of the things that's very powerful about the dodo is our, our narrative of extinction, the way in which we understand that a species could actually vanish from the earth, really begins with the dodo. It was exterminated in the, in the central part of the 17th century, mainly by the British and the Dutch. Uh, and I look at, um, uh, in many ways, how we discounted uh, the dodo's tragic plight by reducing it to the kind of stupid figure that appears in Alice in Wonderland and, and, and the images of dodo's which project a sort of a, a kind of aura of stupidity mm. onto this rather grotesque bird um, and also show how peculiarly English, actually, or, or English-speaking is, is concerned for the dodo. In fact, the Dutch, who, um, who were central to its demise, don't have the expression "as dead as a dodo" like we do. Their expression is "as dead as a rainworm." So, so it's to, also to show how um, how we often take for granted the idea that everybody is concerned about the dodo's plight. In fact, you know, man, many cultures, such as the Russians or the Serbians, and there are contributors who t- say as much. You know, it meant very little at all, and uh, uh, it's just a kind of figure of fun from from Lewis mm-hmm. Carroll.
0: Are there many others? that uh, I think you make a point of uh, annotating that those that are threatened, those that have already gone. I think it, there's a great consciousness about the ones that, if we're not careful, we, we'll never see again.
6: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I think it's somewhere in the region of 1,200 of the world's 10,500 species of bird are now threatened with extinction, so that's more than one-tenth. Uh, you can hardly write a book about the birds of the world without describing and touching upon the issues of of decline and uh, and environmental shrinkage. But, I mean, the story that stands out for me, the story that I feel is not just a story but more like a parable, a religious parable, is the the tale of the uh, passenger pigeon, which was once the most numerous bird on the planet. Um, Naturalists in the mid-19th century saw flocks of a billion birds, a thousand million birds, stretching hundreds and hundreds of kilometers across the sky. And within three generations, we'd reduced it to a single bird, Martha, in Cincinnati, the zoo. And next year is the centenary of her death. So we should recall that we can even destroy the most numerous bird that's ever lived. And for me, it is the ultimate environmental message that should be etched into the heart of every single child and, and, and person on the planet.
0: If we can just end on a lighter note, Mark, because I do hear exactly what you <laughs> say, but the one of the things about birds is that one always feels that God must have had a hell of a lot of fun with his birds. He did all sorts of things with other creatures, but he just went wild with the birds, didn't he? In terms of visuals, you talk about the, the dodo looking a bit strange, but we've got some weird and wonderful characters out there. What what for you has been the most the, the most fun as a bird?
6: Um well I enjoyed meeting a a character called the cassowary in Australia it's um th- theoretically it's, it's said to be a very dangerous bird but it's so Jurassic it's got this extraordinary great helmet um bony plate of on the top of its head it's very difficult to describe and then it has these extraordinary blue wattles that dribble down from its throat so it's, it's, and it's black and has feathers rather like furs and, and, it, and, it, and it occurs in Australia, in, in, in the northern part, in the rainforest parts of Australia, in people's gardens. So I used to wake up in, the, in my guest house, and there would be one of the largest birds on the planet wandering around picking up scraps from the, from the breakfast table. So that was probably one of the most memorable encounters that I've had with a bird during the project.
0: Well, that was Mark Cocker, he's author of a spectacular book. It's called Birds and People. It's published, incidentally, by Jonathan Cape. Well, coming up finally on the show today, thinking bird books locally, we thought we'd speak to a man who's said to be Africa's foremost field birder and most published author of bird books of Africa. He's Ian Sinclair. And I chatted to him earlier, and I asked him if here in South Africa we were very big on birds.
3: Let's sort of put it into perspective. Uh, You take North America, they've got uh, several field guides, you know, very famous ones, uh, and the same as, uh, uh, well, UK, Europe, Western Europe, uh, North Africa, they've got uh, really good field guides, but in South Africa, you know, we have a population of mad keen, almost lunatic bird watchers who buy every available bird book that comes onto the market. And can I say that? The book sales of bird books in South Africa way outnumber those that actually happen in the States and also in um, uh, uh, Western Europe on an annual basis. Good grief. It's, it's just, a, well, as an author, I'm actually thrilled to pieces, uh, but there's a phenomenon uh, in South Africa, over in South Africa, ordinary Boyke, he spends all of his free time, not watching the TV, eating the felt. Hmm. He spends all his holidays in the bush, I don't know, Kruger Park or some other part there, And, uh, you know, an everyday event in those great big national parks we have, you can see the big five in the first couple of days, and then what? The most magnificent array of birds in the world actually occur here in South Africa. And there's there's actually 900 different species, and the most gloriously beautifully coloured birds. uh, Easy to identify, no big challenges. And every, you know, everybody's got a bird book who's in the Kruger Park. Everybody who goes to Kalahari Park or goes at Well, all our parks, there's always bird books. There are bird books in sale.
0: Hmm.
3: And they're far out still all the mammal books.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I and mean, it's interesting that you say you can see the, all the mammals and, the, you know, the big five in the first few days, and then you go, shook, you look upwards, and then you start looking at the birds. Did you say, did I hear you write, we've got 900 different species here in South Africa?
3: Well, oh, 960-something. okay.
0: Okay, and are they all big and bright and beautiful, or have we got lots of what do you guys call them in the in the business? LBJs. Have we got lots uh, the, of little ones.
3: LBJs or yeah. LBBs, little brown buggers. Yeah. But you know, uh, you can have a big floppy hat. You know, and push it down when you see one of them. But when you go through all the, uh, the the more abundant, more obvious ones, then the challenge comes up to identify all those little brown jobs, and that's the challenge. And here comes the intellectual uh, input into uh, you know sorting out all the cisticolas. All the different warbers, all the pivots. And believe me, I've, actually, I've seen kids in the field, you know, 13 or 14 years of age, and they're thrilled to the pieces to have nailed down one particular LBJ. They can identify a lilac-blessed roller, or a crowned eagle, because they're dead easy, but for them, the thrill of actually identifying something so difficult and having it nailed down is way, way beyond anything else. The, the, this the, the excitement of bird birdwatching.
0: Yeah, you, you have to kind of grow into it. I mean, before you know very much about birds, you just look and they're just out there. Uh, what, as a sort of a beginner's, in terms of a beginner's guide, and I know that you personally have written very many books, uh-huh. where would one start?
3: Well, you know, the, the, all my friends, colleagues, I do a lot of lecturing and da da da. I just say, you know, learn the first you know, 40 or 50 different species of birds. Which are really obvious. Even the mosses in your garden, you know, they're there all the time, and they're all the big, bright, and colourful ones. And all those obscure ones, you know, just don't even let them intimidate you. You will get to them eventually, and that's where the excitement starts. And believe it or not, it's like a, it's like a drug. People soak into it, and the the the, the birdwatching community uh, in, in this part of Africa is snowballing. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, and I have to give take my hat off to uh, uh, Birdlife. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 you know, under the new directorship of uh, Park, and his brilliant staff, they have taken the membership of Birdlife down to Mickey Mouse stuff up to the highest levels, and are still growing. And to be a member of that community, uh, where they actually you know give the most wonderful magazine every month,
2: mm. well, every
3: every couple of months, uh, and they do uh, outings, they have meetings. Uh, and the encouragement of the youth in South Africa that these guys are into is just you know to me awesome I just love it
0: it's yeah, I can hear that and it's a jolly good thing that the numbers are growing because the thing um the thing you know we very often we think about birds and I think that they can be very threatened. I think they can be a sort of almost like a a measure of just how threatened many species are of those nine hundred and sixty different species. do we have many of them that are red listed or oh stacks and stack? Yeah
3: you know, endangered, critically endangered, and so on. Uh, but the birds themselves are not. It's actually the habitat they live in. Mm.
2: Uh,
3: you know, so, you know, the, 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 the whole, uh, can I say, the whole conservation front is actually, okay, the birds are there. Uh, they're not rare. They're actually there in, sometimes in some numbers, sometimes in small numbers. But save the habitat, buy the farms up, conserve the grasslands, conserve that forest, and you've actually won hands down, and bird life has been doing that. To the power of 10 for the past uh, six or seven years. They've been great.
0: So it's in all our hands to be able to do something about conserving birds. But just going back to the thing about watching them and identifying them, yep. um, do, what do you do? Do you, do you look at them? Because they fly very quickly, and unless you really know what you're doing, you know, you could, it's in and out of the tree and it's gone. Do you use the calls, the, the sounds of the birds, as a means of identification oh, yeah, that, or that, the,
3: the, 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 the The whole sort of technology of bird watching, you know, per binoculars and a field guide, with the old stead, You know, pervert the field guide. And you actually muddle through and you go through, but there are so many things available today in the market. In fact, uh, uh, they put some of, my, uh, some of my titles on an app, which you can download onto your phone or your iPhone or whatever. And out you go there, and uh, the guys at the IT department at Random House, so these guys are like whiz kids. They're actually uh, developing an app where you hear a bird call in a bush, and you point your phone at it. It tells you what it is. No. Yes. That's cheating. <laughs> but I don't think it's cheating, you know, it's getting what sometimes I'll actually tell you maybe the first two or three birds it sounds most like, mm. you know, it's voice recognition. But you know, this is the way uh, birding is going in the world. And by the way, South Africa are the leaders. Well. We're way up in front. In fact, you know, uh, some of some of the stuff I've been doing in the past uh, and some of my field guides, the people in, in, in the United States and the big publishers in, in Europe have actually written to me asking me permission, thinking I've got this copyrighted. And of course, you can't copyright stuff like that. You see, yeah, yeah, go for it, and are actually applying it, and it's just working so well. But believe me, South Africa is one of the leaders in birding in the world. And they said, you know, I, I just look at the sales of my books. I think, my goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know how many titles of it. I've written, quite a few books, but every year they're selling, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand 400,000 a year. Yeah,
0: and clearly they don't go out of date, because, I mean, birds are birds oh, no, are no, birds, they, you they know?
3: do go out of date, oh, they? I update working. them all the time. Oh, okay. You know, cool. I actually revise them. Uh, you know, it's not a way of selling a new book, put a new full cover, cover on it, but believe me, it's well tweaked inside, it's worth getting a new copy. The Sassel Guide, which has been out there in the market, Young's, and it's mm. the Ultimate Field Guide. Uh, that's in its fourth edition, and since it's come out, it's sold way beyond any other field guide in Africa. So I sold Robertson of the to him over a period of time, uh, and, uh, and thank goodness for Sassel coming to the party, and, and it did, because the most expensive part of that book was the illustrations, and they paid for all the illustrations. Gosh. And, you know, I, I don't like greening, a can like Sassel, but the guys at Sassel have actually tweet this book and looked after it and have actually gone into different aspects of it and are still behind it and every time I actually go to them and say Ian, what you want to do, do it well
0: wonderful,
3: and it's on the market there it, 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 it's actually Hale is one of the finest field guides, you know, I'm only one of the authors by the way mm. Mm. There's actually quite a few that have actually unfolded. In Interesting
0: that you talk about the book having been tweaked, and I keep thinking every time you say tweaked, it sounds like tweeting, and I, I'm thinking, oh, I suppose. Oh, tweeting, I, 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 suppose <laughs> I suppose there are a lot of bird watchers who suddenly can't take up tweeting on a big scale. But you know, just going back to that app that you described that can um, do a sort of voice recognition or bird. Well, they're actually
3: working towards it, but they, they actually have it now. I actually meet people out in the field all the time, oh. and they have it on their phone. They they actually don't carry my books anymore. Yeah. They've got it, you know, in digi form. And they have these tablets, and all the, all the voices are on, or all the calls, they're actually using them to call the birds out of the bushes and stuff like that. There. Now, that's
0: what I'm worried about. So you can stand there with your tablet or your smartphone or whatever yes. it is and, and make uh, sort of bird calls. Yes. And are the birds going to come flocking towards you?
3: Well, you know, if you have a male in a territory and you play his competition to it, he's going to come out to donner you. <laughs> he's going to come out there and say, you know, hey, this is my posse. I live here. This is my territory. Uh, Vai, and you know the, 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 that will actually work a few times. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of research on it, and eventually, if too many people do it, uh, they just get bored. Yeah, yeah. Apparently. You know, but it doesn't do any harm. Uh, but the, the birds won't respond. And, you know, I know particular birds here in the Western Cape which are actually not—they're not easy to see. But if you play a tape at them, they're actually easy to see. But there's certain localities. Many, many birders that are from all over the world go to this particular locality and play the tape. And, of course, nothing happens because the birds say, oh, here's a bird watchers again.
0: So <laughs> they've, they've become a bit savvy, I'm not surprised. Very lastly, Ian, and just briefly, how did you get into bird watching? How did you become a twitcher?
3: Uh, it's an awful story. You know, I, I come from a, a place called Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I as growing up there, I was a normal schoolboy uh, pastime I uh, liked to collect their eggs. Uh, and, you know, and you know, I had a pellet gun and a catapult. I was a hooligan, hmm. absolute hooligan. And, uh, you know, most of my colleagues, my peers, you know, when we were 12 or 13, They found the opposite sex and so on, and they gave it up. I found the opposite sex, but I continued because it was such a great hobby. But I stopped shooting them and killing them. I, stopped, I started observing and watching them. Let Take me tell care. you, I want to work around them. I've actually on them for a year. Very, very quickly, it's the ultimate photo guide to the birds of Africa, south of the Sahara. And I spent the past, I think, uh, six months in the field. I've been in Mongolia twice. I've been in East Africa four times. And i am doing a whole range of photographs of birds outside South Africa. And it's going to come out in about three years' time. It'll be the ultimate publication I've ever been involved in.
0: Well, that was Ian Sinclair, and definitely a name to watch for if you're into birding or planning on being into birding. And it does bring us to a close for the Enviro Show today. Thanks very much for the team. That's Kim Winter and Luyanda Mafiana. And I'm Nancy Richardson. But just before I hand over to Stephen Kirker, just a quote, I think, from Madiba. It's apparently one that he was often wont to use. It's a popular Sutu saying, and it goes, "Moha mohiti, a adule, and it means plant trees for others. Couldn't agree more. So that's it for the Enviro Show. I'm Nancy Richards. Cheers.